continuing series of studies through this a wonderful account of the gospel's advance in the early church, and we come to the back half of Acts 17 with Paul in Athens from verse 16 through 34. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, you should be able to find one uh, there in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 926. So let me read this passage for us, and then I pray for our time, and, and we'll begin together. So do here now as as God speaks to you through his perfect and powerful word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. And being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some of the men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bring your blessing upon our hearing of your word and studying it, that we would not only read it and hear it, but we would keep it and obey it, that we might find your promise benediction offered to us in Jesus Christ, through whom we offer ourselves even in this time. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you're like me, but I've noticed throughout the years how faithful 
Christian missionaries, faithful Christian church members, are people that understand what it means to experience something like a spiritual heart attack. And what I mean by that can be illustrated in the life of a missionary named Henry Martin. He was an English missionary in the 19th century, taking the gospel for a number of years before he died at a young age, uh, taking the gospel to modern-day lands in India and Iran. And there was a time where he sat down with a Muslim friend for dinner. And his friend began to recount how he had recently been in the marketplace and he had seen a painting. And depicted there in that painting was a portrait of Jesus Christ bowing before the prophet Muhammad, asking for some kind of favor. And Martin's Muslim friend noticed him so visibly vexed there at the dinner table that he said something like, why are you uh, worried so much, Brother Henry? You know, these kind of paintings, these kind of portraits, you'll find everywhere in my country. And as he recorded it in his journal, Martin said, I told him that I could not endure existence if Jesus Christ was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were always to be thus dishonored, a spiritual heart attack, because Christ was dishonored, falsely represented. I wonder if you've ever had such an experience before. And the reason, students, I even use that language of spiritual heart attack is because of what we're told, notice again, verse 16 of Acts 17, where Paul's wandering about Athens, and the text tells us that his spirit, his spirit was provoked. Uh, the word there for provoked is one from which we get our English word of paroxysm, which is something like this immediate convulsive fit of emotions. As Paul is walking around the streets and wandering amidst the stores and shelves there in Athens, it's as though he is cast into a spiritual heart attack because he is seeing a city captive to idols. And so one of the things that we do want to learn from the Apostle Paul in this passage today, among the other things that he's going to proclaim in his sermon, is that he's showing us that there's this pattern that belongs to the gospel's advance, not only in Acts, but throughout church history. That as God sends forth his ministers, as he sends forth his missionaries, as he sends forth his members, the gospel tends to be proclaimed with the most purity and power, with the most zeal and courage from a heart that's completely captivated and controlled by the love of Jesus Christ. Because in ways that we're not going to have time to notice today, you could come to our text and think about it, as many often do, and understandably so, as presenting us something of a methodology for evangelism in our time. Uh, but I want to steer us into more of the theology of what Paul said there in the Areopagus of Athens so many centuries ago. But what we can notice from the methodology here is that the apostolic pattern was one of compassion, uh, moving ministers and missionaries, members, to preach the gospel. He's wandering about the city, and as we'll see in just a second, he's actually not there intending to do any sort of missionary work, but he's so controlled by his love for Jesus Christ, and we should say his, his love for the citizens under the captive spell of idolatry and worldly philosophy uh, that he is moved to speak. Oh, we, we live in a world, don't we, that uh, perhaps it might look different than it did in ancient Athens, but we, we live in a county, we live in a city, a state, a country uh, that's given over to worldly philosophy and a pagan idolatry. 
Now, we've said before from this very pulpit that our idols might be more sophisticated today, but that doesn't mean they're any less real. Idols of power in our time, idols of place, prestige, possessions, and, and pleasure uh, dominate, don't they? The ordinary communities in which we live. And so we want to learn how Paul wants to address those in ancient Athens and see how they might even help us as we want to address the same in our own time. Now, we've said something along the way about this this title that belongs to the book we've been noticing for many months now, The Acts of the Apostles. Uh, By this point, you you might have sympathy with me when I say, we really could title it, couldn't we? The Acts and the Sermons of the Apostles. Because if you've had eyes to see, if you've been with us through these many months, what Luke does is he's narrating the story of the gospel's advance. Uh, When the actions of that advance are told, he tends to do it in rapid fashion. But when the speeches or sermons come, it's as though he slows down the story noticeably, almost pressing pause that we might be able to stop and stare at the truth of God's Son, uh, Jesus Christ. Because by this point in Acts chapter 17, by my count, what we got today is the 12th time that Luke is slowing down the story with, with a speech or with a sermon. And in a book full of famous speeches and sermons. This might be one of the most famous as he speaks there to the philosophically captivated crowd on Mars Hill. So the main point I want you to see from his sermon is simply this. It's a sermon that called them, and therefore calls us too, to hear and heed the gospel of the sovereign creator. To hear, to heed the gospel of the sovereign creator. You could divide this text by simply noticing first what Paul saw, uh, what Paul saw, and then what Paul did, and then what Paul said. Uh, but I want you to see in the first third the problem there at Athens. We need to understand something about the problem that got Paul so energized. And then in the back two thirds, we'll see the proclamation as he's there in the Areopagus. And before we get to that problem, though, let's remember where we left off last week. Because if you weren't with us last week, we left off in the middle part of Acts chapter 17 with Paul on a cruise ship. In previous weeks, he and his associates, Silas and Timothy, they had been in Thessalonica. And they did what they always do. They went into a synagogue, and they went and preached the gospel. And what always ensued, ensued, which was a revival and a riot as the people responded to the preaching of Jesus Christ. And we saw in Thessalonica, these jealous Jews whipped up the crowds, and they drove Christ's missionaries out of Thessalonica. They went down to Berea, and they did the same. Uh, There in that synagogue in Berea, they met Jews that were said to have more nobility as they eagerly examined the truth of God's word. But those same jealous opponents showed up. They came down, marched down to Berea to drive Paul and Silas and Timothy out. And where we left off last week in verse 15 was, was Paul was on this boat heading off to Athens, and he had left Silas and Timothy behind, in all likelihood, to begin to plant this church in Berea. So when we pick up the account today, here we have Paul in Athens, and he's confronted with a problem. And again, what you need to notice from the outset as we seek to understand the context here of the sermon that ensues is what happens in verse 16. He was waiting for Silas and Timothy at Athens. It's not as though what we've seen in previous passages where his desire was to go to Athens and he had a strategic missionary initiative. Uh, He's like many people, 
before and since in visiting Athens. He was just walking out and about, seeing the sights and the sounds. And what confronts him was a city, as the end of verse 16 says, that was under this captive power of idols. Uh, One of the ancient historians quipped, not with a small amount of truth, that it was easier to run into an idol in ancient Athens than it was a person. Some ancient historians would say as many as 30,000 altars and temples to idols could be found throughout the city. So it would have been hard, of course, for Paul to get exercised in the midst of what he was observing there. And so notice verse 17. In light of this spiritual heart attack, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Verse 18 says, even some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers talked with him too. And I want you to feel a point of challenge and and even conviction on Paul's model here. You see a man who will later tell the Corinthians that it's the love of Christ that controls all of his missionary endeavors. Frankly, it's the love of Christ that controls his life. And so he's there in Athens, not on a tourist trip, but something more like that than a missionary trip. And almost no moment passes before what? He starts to go about preaching because he's a man that's given over to the situation at hand. He sees the problem and he knows the answer. And he wants to tell everyone about it because he talks with Jews, devout people in the synagogue. He goes into the marketplace, talks with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. He not just talks to anyone who will listen. He goes to any place he has the chance to speak with them. And you see, even daily he's doing this. So, so any time he's willing and ready to talk about the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. And how much should that even convict many of us, if not all of us in the room today? Always at the ready, controlled by Christ's love to speak to anyone, anywhere, uh, about the reality of life in Jesus Christ. And he was evidently stirring up such attention that notice what some were calling him in the middle part of verse 18. What does this babbler wish to say? Now, kids, you would want to know that this word babbler, it more literally means seed picker. It, It pictures a bird wandering about a city street, just grabbing like a scavenger, grabbing seeds here, there, and everywhere. It was definitely an unkind way to speak about Paul. It was their way of saying, here's this pseudo-philosopher that shows up in our marketplaces for like the worldview amateur hour, saying that he knows something about the truth. Now what they end up doing, you'll notice verse, 20, um, verse 19, they took him which it's hard to know actually with that word took. It can often be used in the ancient Greek world for arrest. So I think what you're meant to see is something more than a mere invitation that the text often seems to connote. This is something of a forceful, Paul, you must come where? Notice to the Areopagus, verse 19, that we may know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. That's the problem in Athens. Uh, a city given over to sinful idolatry, uh, a city that was likewise given over to worldly philosophy, and it provides the occasion for this proclamation of Jesus Christ in one of the most notable places in the ancient Athenian world. And that leads us, doesn't it, to verse 22 and uh, the proclamation there in Athens. A number of years ago, I was in India for a couple of weeks with a four-person team to preach and, and teach. And one of the brothers that was on the team with us was a pastor from Canada. 
And pretty early on in the trip that I, I realized that th this brother had a noticeable zeal for Jesus Christ. Uh, that was humbling and convicting in a variety of different ways. And I, I remember driving around this kind of village area where we were in northern India uh, one week. And I was watching him uh, look out the window. Uh, as some of you might know, a country that evidently much more than us is, is given over to idols. As you just see them on streets and in stores and and shelves, and he, after looking out the window for a few minutes, he, he turned over to me and he says, I think I now know what Paul meant uh, in Athens when he was provoked by seeing a people given over to idolatry. And uh, he was an earnest brother, and you could just kind of see this spiritual uh, blood beginning to boil. And it was only, I think, two nights later that we were on this elevated platform there in northern India. We were preaching the gospel, three of us were, to these hundreds of people that were gathered about. And I remember uh, this brother with that kind of holy zeal, he, he mounted that uh, elevated platform and he began to preach a sermon with particular boldness. Frankly, it was unlike anything that I had heard him say in the weeks before and certainly uh, the weeks since as he was embodying something of Paul there in Athens. Because notice what happens in verse 22. He's standing in the midst of the Areopagus and he says, men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. Now, you, before you get into the theology of his sermon, you need to know something uh, about the context happening there on this mount that was known as, as Mars Hill. Uh, because this is less about his intentionality and methodology in preaching the gospel. It's about his shrewd strategy in, in preaching the gospel. Because what he's saying is, I noticed you've got this idol out there in order to cover your religious bases. Maybe there's someone out there that we don't know, and so we worship that God too. Well, the reason he emphasizes that is because of another claim that was used against him. If you go back up to verse 18 at the end, where others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. At this time, in Athens, no new foreign divinities were allowed to be proclaimed. Famously, in this Athens, centuries before when it was at its peak of prominence, a man named Socrates, he told of a, another new deity, and he was executed because of it. So Paul's showing up here in the Areopagus, saying, I'm not introducing to you a new deity. I saw something that you know about this deity as I passed by your streets previously this week. So you need to know something about even the judicial reality that's going on in his sermon. He's there in the Areopagus, uh, which you may or may not know. It was the highest judicial court in the land. They, they've summoned Paul in all regards to a trial of what he was preaching, what he was teaching. He, he's there seated above. If you know how the Areopagus was laid out there on Mars Hill, he would have been standing above uh, this crowd that would have been below him. He's got an audience now. By speaking about this unknown God, he's got them in their captivated attention. And what he goes on to proclaim in verse 24 through 31, a number of truths about God that I've even uh, heard a theologian say, you can line out no less than 28 truths about God from Paul's sermon. I know a pastor that preached this text and gave him 15 different truths about God from Paul's proclamation. I'm just going to give you five so we can keep it more simple than that. I want you to see number one. As Paul preaches to the Athenians, he says, God is the creator. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world 
and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. No man, of course, can control the creator. If you kind of just glance your way again through the sermon, what you'll see is that Paul doesn't, with like chapter and verse, reference the Old Testament as he was so often prone to do when he was speaking to Jews in their synagogue. Nevertheless, everything in his sermon is ripe and rich with all of this Old Testament theology for kids. Where does he begin in his sermon? But the very place the Bible begins. For kids, what does Genesis 1-1 say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What the Athenians needed to know is that there is but one God who has created all things. This God is not dwelling in temples, and they would have been able to look out there through the Areopagus at temples dotting the city sites across the way. And he says, this God, he doesn't live in human temples because human hands can't control him. Which leads to the second point, he is the sustainer. Look at verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In a subtle and shrewd way, Paul is quite courageously debunking all of the great values of the people that were listening to him at the time. Because if you were in ancient Greece and you talked about life and who sustains life, it will always lead to this reflection and adoration of, of the god Zeus. And here's Paul saying, oh, this god that I proclaim to you, and he's going to talk about its name, this god's name, in just a moment. Well, this god he sustains everyone. It's this great doctrine of God's independence, that he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything, which tells us, no doubt, that humans are what? We are utterly dependent upon God for everything. Uh, don't you know that many people in the world today, some of you perhaps even in the room today, uh, are on this quest for life? You know, what is it that's going to give that, that true joy, that true satisfaction, that, that kind of unyielding contentment in the midst of life on earth? And how many people today look for something or look to someone other than the God who sustains all things to bring them life? And in all their striving and all the emptiness of such idolatry, they don't realize that that very God is close to them, which is what the text is going to go on to say. So he's creator, he's sustainer, and we see thirdly, he's ruler. Uh, you'll see the text continues, verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. He's not just the sovereign sustainer of all things. He's marked off the nations. He's established the nations. He gives their borders and boundaries to them. And this reality of God as the sovereign creator, well, it seems to be, and it's quite true, uh, that he is high, that he is transcendent in his glory. But what Paul's using it for is to tell them that this God, and only this God, is not just transcendent, but he's also imminent. And kids, that's a, a way that we just simply say God draws near to his people. Oh, you'll see the end of verse 27. Yet, actually, he's not far off from each one of us. And isn't that the great gospel truth that we found in the name of Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, who is God with us, who has drawn near to us, no matter where you are, no matter where you live, God draws near to his people. And who are his people? Well, that's the fourth truth about God. He is Father. 
You'll see he's quoting from some poets. He's using this language of offspring as a springboard to verse 29. He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Again, see the subtle shrewdness of Paul. The, the Greeks at the time thought they were essentially the best race on the planet. They, they considered every other tribe, tongue, and nation nothing more than barbarians. And here's Paul saying, no, actually, God, the creator, sustainer, ruler, he is father over all humanity. Uh, this God is, of course, not like any of these thousands of idols that line your streets, one that you can control with art or imagination, one that you can fashion with gold, silver, or stone. This God is completely different, which leads to the fifth truth. He is commander. That's what we see in verse 30 and 31. Uh, I know a brother in this church that I think most weeks when we have the morning sermon here, will diligently read through Matthew Henry's commentary on whatever the sermon passage is on Sunday. If you don't know Matthew Henry's name, he still probably is the most read English commentator on Scripture uh, throughout the world. He was a very efficient and effective and faithful pastor in the early uh, 18th century, and his father was named Philip. Uh, Philip himself was actually quite a good pastor. He, he was friends with one of the celebrity pastors in his area at the time, a man named Mr. Dodds. And Mr. Dodds was said to be so zealous in his gospel preaching that the citizens would often mock him as Mr. Faith and Repentance. And what Philip Henry would often remark is saying, well, if you think that's vile, I'll become even more vile than that because faith and repentance is all in all in Christianity. He went on to say, if I die preaching in the pulpit, may the Lord find me preaching repentance. And he said, if I die out of the pulpit, may the Lord find me practicing repentance. Faith and repentance is all in all in Christianity, and certainly it's all in all in Paul's response, for which he calls in every single sermon. Look at verse 30. The times of ignorance God has overlooked. Or you didn't know his name, you didn't know his person, you don't know the truth about him, you Athenians. No longer is that the case. Why? He is now commanding all people everywhere to repent. It's a simple response, isn't it, to all gospel preaching, to the truth as it's found in Jesus Christ. You must repent. Boys and girls, it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you haven't done. Uh, the call in the gospel of a sovereign creator is you must repent. And why must you do it? Well, Paul peels back the curtain, as it were, and shows us God's calendar. He says, verse 31, because God has fixed a day, it's on his calendar, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So again, it crescendos, it climaxes in, in Jesus Christ. Uh, but, you, but you'll notice how at the very end, uh, what uh, rhetoricians would call the peroration of his sermon He's now struck at the essential chord of the sermon setting. Where is he? He's on the Areopagus there at Mars Hill. This is the place of judicial decision-making. This is the place where people sit, as we'll see soon enough, judges before Paul in that moment, who would sit from that same platform, stand therefore and give judgment. And what does Paul say? I proclaim to you 
the one who is the true judge. That God has fixed a day that is coming when by this resurrected Son whose name is Jesus Christ, He is going to judge every single person for what they have done. Well, the same thing is true, isn't it, of you in the room today? I wonder what your response is to this gospel of a sovereign creator. It's clear enough how the people responded to it. Look at verse 32 to 34. Now, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. So, as usual, some rejected, but some are more reluctant. The text continues. Well, we'll hear you again about this sometime. Maybe you're in here today and likewise are curious yet procrastinate in truly responding to Jesus Christ. Well, when the time is convenient, oh, we might as well think about this again. And there are always those who believe. A church is being formed. Notice in Athens, verse 33 and 34, Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite. Now, that's a way of saying in kind of the ancient world, he was one of the judges there in the Areopagus, converted in the preaching of Paul, and a woman named Damaris and others with him. Now, Paul was there just to see the sights and the sound as he waited on Silas and Timothy. And because of this holy zeal for Jesus Christ, by the end of the Areopagus sermon, a young church is now growing, a church that's responded to that gospel of a sovereign creator. Our family is in what I lovingly refer to as the silly season of the semester when basically Saturday is Soccer Saturday with all the kids playing in soccer games. It seems as though a normal uh, Saturday means seven or eight hours going to soccer games, watching soccer games, sitting on the sidelines at soccer games, and having done something like this, I suppose, for 30-plus uh, years now, and many of you would know the same from youth sports you've often attended. Uh, you, you see certain patterns that remain true among the parents on the sidelines. And the pattern that I have in mind this morning is the parent that seems to be not terribly concerned about the athletic event in front of them. You know, no matter what's happening there on the field, they just kind of sit back in their chair and just are waiting for the, the event to come to its conclusion. They, they want to ensure that they get home so they can watch the college football game in the afternoon. And so uh, eventually, uh, they just will perhaps talk. And uh, ordinarily, in my experience, even with the most quiet crowd, there is almost guaranteed to be one instance that can happen on the field that gets them to stand up and shout. It's not when the team scores a goal. It's not even when the referee makes a bad call. Nor is it even when the other team scores a goal. It's when their child is fouled, or supposedly fouled. The parent will then, who has been quiet the entire season, stand up and make noise. Why? Because the one they love needs protection. And as we close, I want you to see three observations from Paul's sermon there in Athens. And what this text ought to point us towards in a life of faithfulness. And the first of which is related to that. That which we love demands we speak. That which we love Demands even sometimes we shout. So point to number one here at the end. It calls us to grow in holy jealousy for the gospel. Here's a text that calls us to grow in holy jealousy 
for the gospel. When he was thinking about this passage years ago, the, the great English preacher John Stott said this, Why is it that in spite of the great needs and opportunities of our day, the church slumbers peacefully on, and that so many Christians are deaf and dumb, deaf to Christ's commission and tongue-tied in their testimony? His answer is, I think the majority reason is this. We do not speak as Paul spoke because we do not feel as Paul felt. I feel, therefore I speak. I am provoked at the lostness and darkness of this vast city. Therefore I must declare the truth of Jesus Christ. How many days have passed in your life? Weeks, perhaps months, when you last knew that holy jealousy, when Christ was misrepresented, when falsehood was declared, and you couldn't help but stand up and shout to protect and proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. It calls us to grow in the holy jealousy that's ours in the gospel. Number two, it calls us to heed the sovereign authority of God in this gospel, the sovereign authority. That really is what's running through this passage, isn't it? God is the one who creates. God is the one who commands. God is the one that dictates, delivers, and decides. God is the God and the only God. In your city full of streets and shelves and stores of idols, there is but one God to whom all of you must ultimately bow, before whom you must ultimately bend the knee. So your heart itself might be its own assembly line of idolatry. Ways in which you are looking in satisfaction in life and meaning and comfort and purpose to something other than God. And it's a declaration, isn't it, there in the Areopagus that says there is but one God to whom every person must owe their allegiance. So there's this holy jealousy that we want to grow in our understanding of the gospel. We need to submit to God's sovereign authority in the gospel finally. Uh, we must see the gracious intentionality of the gospel. Because look back at what we're told in verse 27. God has fixed the borders and boundaries of people in the world with a particular purpose. Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. God places people in your life. Do you not know it? that they might seek after God as you declare the truth to them? Has he not fixed the borders and the boundaries of your very neighborhood that neighbors right, left, across, behind might know even from your life's testimony the truth about Jesus Christ? Now, some of you are fixed within the borders and boundaries today of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and you're here that you might seek after the God who is near because you have a city full of people striving and searching after images. And what does the gospel tell us in its gracious intentionality? The image has arrived. And his name is Jesus Christ, the sovereign creator, sustainer, ruler, commander of all people. For he himself is the image of the invisible God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would grant unto us the grace of your Holy Spirit that our hearts would be open to the truth 
that our lives would be receptive to the good news that a Savior has come, conquered sin, Satan, and death, and life is found in looking to Him. Father, give us the humility to repent in ways we must this day. And we pray it only that your name would be glorified in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.